0: Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey, Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This is Chapter 13 in a hopefully temporary reformatting of the show as we document what's happening in and around Amarillo due to the impact of the COVID-19 coronavirus. As of this episode, Governor Abbott has lifted stay-at-home restrictions, allowing some Texas businesses and activities to resume. But at the same time, infection rates are skyrocketing here in the Panhandle. They're largely centered around meatpacking plants in this area, so the governor has sent a surge team to deal with the outbreak. These teams are supposed to be helping with testing, sanitation, transportation issues, a lot of activities related to these plants. And a federal task force also arrived in the area earlier in the week. Before we get to the show, here's a message from today's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Handle Publishing, which is excited to introduce two new books by local author and business operator Charles D'Amico. The novel Veritas is a thriller following a former FBI agent whose mentor, a former agent himself, has become a famed killer. The novel One Golden Day is an uplifting story about an Amarillo family on the day of Travis Golden's wedding. Learn more about both books at bluehandlepublishing.com or buy the Kindle versions for $5 each on Amazon. Now, on to the show. A lot of recent episodes have focused on how local businesses are pivoting, are making adjustments and otherwise adapting to the shutdown. But for this episode, I wanted to consider the most vulnerable populations in Amarillo. What has been the impact on the homeless or on kids living in poverty? What's been the impact on our refugee and immigrant populations, or on the elderly? That's what we're exploring in this episode. It's being released on May 7th, 2020. These interviews were recorded prior to that. So as usual, things may have changed by the time you listen. Here's the show.
1: My name is Ryan Pennington. I'm the Executive Director of the Refugee Language Project, which is based here in Amarillo.
0: Hey Ryan, thank you so much for being on the podcast i I wanted to talk to you, and I know it's been really busy for you the last few days but i I wanted to hear from you what you've been hearing from Amarillo's refugee and immigrant communities as they deal with not just the virus itself but the economic impact from it so what's what's happening right now in that world?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that Jason. I'm happy to speak uh, on their behalf uh though. Um, I want you know anyone listening to be mindful of the fact that um, as many refugees as there are, there are that many stories, um, and no no one is the same. Um, you know, i've I've been hearing two different uh, main issues. two, two things jump out. and one is fear. Um, they are just experiencing a lot of Fear at the moment as so many people in their communities have gotten sick unlike anything they have experienced and um, and that's been overwhelming as they've watched that grow. Um, you know and and due to um, some communication barriers uh, for many of them, there are a number of um, rumors they get started fears that if they're found to be positive, uh, they could be deported or even killed, for example, or Um, or just fear even from their own community that if if they are found to have it, they might be stigmatized and rejected. Um, And so that's a a lonely thing for many of them to carry. Um, But at the same time, in the midst of that fear, I just keep getting phone calls from people in each community who are rising to the occasion and solving problems, figuring out how to get, resources to one another how to overcome issues how to help them fill out forms so it's it's just incredible to to watch uh, the strength
0: who are those leaders who have been rising up I mean are, are you seeing them among like business leaders or uh, religious leaders I mean what where is that um I, I yeah. guess that impetus coming from
1: yeah it runs the gamut but for the most part they're people who in many cases, are not working at a meatpacking plant, um, and they are rising to the occasion because they have the flexibility to care for their community and to think critically because they're not staring at everything um, up close. So people in the Chin community, I had a woman call me today wanting to think through how to to figure out a system to get uh, Chin people to fill out short-term disability requests with Tyson Foods, for example. And so, so many of them are struggling to fill out those forms or make those phone calls that they need due to the language barrier. And how can anyone help them if they can't uh, enter their apartment? Um, and so she's working on on how, how do we solve that problem? And I'm seeing the same thing from individuals in the Somali community um, who are are just being really creative. That's neat.
0: Could Could you talk a little bit more um, you, you mentioned the fear, whether it's, um, I mean, there's a legitimate fear, worries about getting infected, but then there's the fear that is a result of misinformation or, or maybe wrong assumptions within these communities. I, I wonder if there's, you know, maybe something that we don't fully understand um, about the culture or about, you know, some of the isolation within these communities that makes them more vulnerable to those kinds of fears,
1: yeah I mean, I think it's important to to keep in mind where many of these people have come from, their backgrounds, uh, where uh, national governments have taken steps in military uniforms uh, to hurt them. They've taken advantage of power um, at at the cost of of their communities, and and that's what has caused many of them to flee. And so when you have that background. When you come to a place like this uh, where we are free. Uh, I think many of these communities still have that past, and they expect the worst. Um, they expect that they are still going to be um, sought out and attacked. You know, they they have a hard time uh, trusting. Um, and so, when you when you are afraid, you believe lies. Uh, I've seen that over and over again among these communities, and. And only with personal relationships do those fears go away. Um, you know, I think one, one thing is, is just that they, how can I say this? Um, they, they work in such close quarters with one another. Um, but then they return home, uh, into close quarters with one another. And, uh, and they're in these big communities, multi-generational apartments, and, and yet now they are isolating themselves in their own bedrooms. Um, and take the Somali community as an example, where they would be getting a lot of information through their leaders during Ramadan gatherings each day, normally. But because they're not able to participate in those and they're stuck at home, they're not getting clear information. There's no one to pass that on to them because so many of them uh, utilize oral communication uh, above all other means. And so they're they're just not getting truth spoken to their face.
0: You know, in that case, I I know one of the one of the difficulties within Amarillo is that the communities of immigrants and and refugees and, and people who come from, you know, other nations, regardless of why they're here. Um, that, that they tend to self-isolate, whether that's on their part or, or maybe the part of, of our community. There's just not a lot of interaction with them. Um, on one hand it might be great for the spread of a virus, but on the other hand is makes it difficult, you know, for people to reach out, to try to help, um, to seek that that kind of interaction between groups that makes a community stronger. Are, are you seeing? that play out? I mean, is is this something that that, that we can really help with?
1: I'm I'm definitely seeing, I mean, we all know that isolation right now is actually key to stopping the spread of this, and and that's uh, nearly impossible for many of these communities, um, just due to their environments. Um, You know, I'm hearing from know elderly people from different communities who are you know talking about being sick but they can't get anyone even in their own community to drive them somewhere um because if they do that person will then be taken out of commission to help others and so the problem keeps compounding unfortunately um as far as how we can help um i I would want to remind uh everyone that they are responding just like we are. I mean, you have plenty of people who are um, fearful and hiding away. You have others who are completely disregarding um, the current crisis, and you have everything in between. Um, The Refugees uh, are no different than we are, (laughs) and uh, these communities, the only thing that unites them here in this instance is that many of them work at a meatpacking plant or they're forced to work uh, close to one another. Uh, one struggle they're currently having is, is is applying for short-term disability. And I'm trying to think uh, about how to help them do that without without being in, in person. Um, I don't have the solutions, um, but I, I'm trying to think through the problems clearly. The Chin community has asked for masks. Uh, they just mentioned that today. Um, that they would really benefit from that. So um, that's that's one concrete thing that people could provide if someone wanted to coordinate collecting those. Um, you know, I, I'm reminded of a, of a poem by Shel Silverstein called Signals. It's uh, when the light is green, you go. When the light is red, you stop. But what, you, uh, but what do you do when the light turns blue with orange and lavender spots? Um, no one knows right now what <laughs> what the right, answers are and and i feel with these communities it's, it's just every day it's a challenge to figure out exactly how to solve uh the problems that they're facing um but it's good for us to remember that there are leaders in these communities who are perfectly capable so it's our job to come alongside them and equip them to be leaders not to tell them what to do
0: and ryan i i I know despite those challenges which which you're seeing, and I know you're you're helping coordinate with with the leaders in those communities, but in this process at this moment, you know, is there anything that's giving you hope right now? are Are you seeing something that that maybe you see as a potential source of optimism? if if we can get through this, we can build on this and in, in the way that the communities are coming together. What are you seeing there?
1: I definitely i mean, I always have a certain amount of hope due to my own faith, um, that, you know, even, even now we're given tools, uh, for, to enact hope and healing here, which points to a future reality where every tear will be wiped and the world will be set to rights. Um, but I, I do, I do see leaders rising up. I see refugee communities recognizing that, um, that they do have the solutions, that they do have the ability to solve problems, um, and so anytime I get a phone call from you know a, even a young a young Chin woman who is uh, stepping out and becoming a leader in in her own community before our eyes, that's that's cause for celebration um, because as, as things pass and move forward, um, she will now be equipped to do more and bigger things. Um, so, so I am, I am excited uh, about that in spite of the challenges that when people overcome, uh, they're equipped to do bigger and better things.
0: Ryan Pennington, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Absolutely.
1: Thanks for the time, Jason.
2: I am Jeannie Wagner, and I am the Executive Director of the Guyon Saunders Resource Center for the Homeless.
0: Junie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I know this has been a busy moment for you, and I'd I'd really like to know what things look like in your world right now.
2: Well, things have changed um, in some ways and yet have stayed the same in others. And when I say that is that we um, have not closed our doors. Um, We have stayed open and we're continuing to come to work every day before we— when our homeless community came in the doors, none of us wore masks. We didn't require them to wash their hands or anything of that nature. So now, when they come in in the morning, we have them uh, we have hand sanitizer, so everybody has to sanitize as they come in. We make them spread out. There's tape on the um, entrance. and then as they come in, we supply them with mask. And the paper mask, even though they were, wonderful to have the the city donated something we had different groups donate masks. um our clients did not keep them Uh, they threw them in the trash after the day was over so recently um we put out a request to the to the community and we've been having people donate the cloth mask and so those have been keeping those uh pretty well since since we've been receiving them but it, um, and not to make light of the matter, but I, to, to just put a little perspective, every day we have a masquerade party here at the Guy on Saunders. So everybody's wearing a mask. We're spreading people out our day rooms. We've opened more day rooms so that we can spread chairs out so people aren't sitting so close to get, together like they used to. Um, we've also started feeding every day. And before COVID, we were not able to do so. Uh, We just didn't have the funding. And so the people that would bring food were volunteers in the community, church groups, and they would come and drop off sack lunches. Or we had um, a couple of people that would cook hot meals twice a week and bring them into the center, um, which was such a blessing. But once COVID hit, everybody kind of stopped their activity. And so we had all these people uh, that didn't have a place to get a meal. Uh, some of the places that they went before were no longer serving. And so here we had people and no food. So um, we started asking the community again to step up. And we applied for grants and uh, were blessed to, to receive uh, the Emerald Area Foundation. Um, we received a grant from them for emergency funds, and from United Way, and so we were. Eight, and then we had um, just wonderful people from the community to step up and say, "We're willing to feed your people." And so Belmar Bakery, uh, Sharky's Burritos, um, Deborah McCart, uh, who she put together a group called Loaves, Loaves and Fishes, and they're having people in the community donate funds. And it's a twofold process of having, uh, trying to help restaurants in the community as well as feeding our homeless. So um, today, uh, one of the people that joined the Loaves and Fishes, Leslie Massey, she um, went to tie our wand and bought lunches for our homeless. Um, But we're, so we have a group that's helping our local restaurants and feeding our people. Uh, so every day we have a different group coming in. Totem has brought food. Um trying to think of everybody that's sonic. They, it's just been a, a huge blessing. And so um, our numbers in the beginning, when COVID first hit and we, things started shutting down, they rose quite a bit. And so we had to adjust more people, yet we've got to space them out. And um, anyhow, but the city of Amarillo also stepped in and we came up with a protocol with the Salvation Army uh, and Guyon Saunders because we were the only two programs taking in new people um, that didn't change their requirements. And um, so we came up with that protocol and we started getting people in housing um, and we started getting people in hotels. So that the numbers in the in the night shelter were not as great, and so um, our numbers are lower now. But we're still averaging between 195 a day at the Guyon Saunders, where before we were in 180 to 140.
0: Okay, and. I know that the homeless population is maybe uniquely vulnerable to this disease because a lot of them may be older. A lot of them won't have access to things like washing their hands. A lot may have bad immune systems um, or or other health problems that could compound what happens. So tell me a little about the importance of continuing to support them and what you're doing to protect them.
2: Well, they don't have a, a home to shelter in place, so we are their shelter the guy on Saunders during the day and Salvation Army during the night. And their immune systems are lower when you're on the streets and it it ages you more rapidly than someone that has a home to go to. Um, You're exposed to people and all kinds of things that you might not be exposed to otherwise. And so our goal has been... To give them a place where they can go, help them to stay away from. Well, let me go back. When this first all started, it, uh, we were more worried about people who traveled, especially if they traveled outside of the country. Well, when you look at your homeless population, most of them have not gone to China or Italy or so. Okay, so they're safe people. And then it went to people just traveling to big cities. Okay, so. They're still; they should barely still be in good shape. Those that are local to Amarillo. Well, then, it, the more it spread, the more it had potential to come into our homeless population. And if it got, if it gets into our homeless population, because of their immune systems, and because they don't mm. have regular medical care, it's going to be wildfire. And so that was our goal: is to keep it from spreading like wildfire. And so far, so good. I mean, we have not had a large, uh, we haven't had to send very many for testing, and there's a protocol that we um, put together for that. So a few of our clients have had to go for testing, but so far the plan that we've put together is, and it's basically been just providing shelter and spreading people out as much as possible. So right now, um, the Salvation Army, it's just men there. And I think, I think last night they just had 70, which is half, less than half of what they normally have. Um, the women, the city has helped to put them in a, in a hotel room, individual hotel rooms, okay. so that they um, are able to isolate there families um, we they did a uh, rapid rehousing to get them um, out of the Salvation Army and into apartments and so there were seven families when we started this initially um, and they went into apartments and then a lot of our older clients that we know have health conditions. and Juliana kitten, uh, was a coming home program in the community development with the city. She was a major part, I mean, part of how we all rallied together and, and put this plan into place. And so she and her team started the getting the clients out of the Salvation Army, and then the rest of us started spacing them out the best we could, those that remained. So, um like I said, they either went to an apartment or they went to a hotel, and now we do our best to spread the men out, whether they be at the Salvation Army at night or with us during the day.
0: And Junie, the, the last question I've been asking each of my guests is to share something that's giving you hope right now. So as you look at the city's response, at, at some of the volunteers bringing meals, even, even with your own staff, what's one thing that maybe is giving you a cause for optimism?
2: Oh my goodness! It's it's the people that have donated to us and uh, have just come with with food and support. And the city itself has been such a a a blessing because when you're you know you have you're running a shelter, but you don't don't like that breaks out, and you know you have to protect people. Um, and you're a nonprofit. It's it's. It's just wonderful that the city uh, leadership would come in and say, we're, we're here with you and we're going to help you in every step of the way. So um, just the support of our, our city government and the people of Amarillo, uh, bringing meals, uh, bringing masks, bringing sanitizers and soaps. Uh, we offer showers here at the Guyon Saunders and laundry services. So for the community to bring us extra soaps and extra hygiene, um, and when we do get clients in housing, them to show up and donate couches and chairs and beds and home goods. I mean, our community has just, even though they're not able to come in and we don't have the interaction that we used to -to face-to-face, they are still making sure we have what we need. And so that has been um, probably the the um, biggest boost for us is knowing we're, even though we're here every day, we're not alone every day.
0: All right. Junie Wagner, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much. Hi, this is Christy Greenway. I'm an administrator at Park Central for the Assisted Living.
0: And Christy, before we start, um, could you give me a sense of the scope of Park Central. I mean I, I know it's a lot more than just assisted living. So can you tell me a little bit about the residents that live there and the different categories?
3: Yes, we are we are a huge campus. We have four independent living apartment buildings. We have two assisted living buildings and we have a nursing facility.
0: Okay, tell me what life has been like for the residents during this pandemic? Um, Did you shut down there a little bit earlier than the rest of the city?
3: Well, first off, I want to reassure you that we have no positive COVID-19 cases at Park Central. That's good. So from the onset of this outbreak, we've taken extreme measures to ensure the safety of our residents and staff, and we've been successful so far. What did Um, that
0: look like just in terms of you know, when the city began to shut down and, and stopping the flow of visitors and families and all those different things?
3: Yes, well, that changed life drastically, both for the residents, the families, and, and our employees. From January to March looked drastically different. Um, we were mandated at, at the onset of this to not accept visitors. Visitors couldn't come in. And we have many resident families who come in on a daily basis. To visit their loved ones. And so things really changed. Not only were we mandated not to have um, visitors, but not to have communal dining, not to have group activities. And these are a part of our daily lives.
0: I know that, that there's a very distinct difference between residents. I mean, you have some who are in long-term care, you know, and are confined to, to their rooms almost all the time. And then you have other residents who live independently. And, Previously, they may have come and gone, you know, as they wanted to go shopping or to go visit families. How have those residents responded to the different restrictions?
3: Well, I think they, for the most part, everyone's had a great spirit about it. Um, Of course, when you change anything in a daily routine, it's hard, but we have tried to be creative in helping residents. We've um, shopped for them. We've We've supplied things that they normally would go to get themselves. We've, we've been creative in how we do that. We have supplied iPads so that they can see face-to-face their loved ones, not just talk on the phone um, through Skype or FaceTime. And I even have one resident in a facility whose grandson was getting married via Facebook Live, and we were able to play that on a humongous TV for her. So she got to be a part of the wedding.
0: What about some of the community aspects of life there? You know, I I know a lot of grandparents may move to a place like Park Central because they don't want to take care of their own house, you know, but they also don't want to be isolated. They want to continue to see friends. And that's one of the real draws of a retirement facility. So, what has that looked like uh, over the past few weeks?
3: Well, the, the activity staff and the employees have done a great job of being creative. Um, Finding ways to do things where everyone is six feet apart for social distancing, but still can feel included and part of something. One of my favorite things that um, we've done is the chaplains came together and decided they would come up with a way that we could do a concert. So they got a trailer and they put everything they needed to do a concert on the trailer. And they were able to go to parking lots, to streets and play for the residents so that they could open their windows, come out on their balcony, their patio and listen and so everybody was doing the same thing just not in close proximity. And so those are the types of things we just have to keep being creative about in order to keep fellowship and community
0: going. So a lot of a lot of residents who are in their 80s and 90s, you know, have lived through enormous world events you know whether it's world war ii or you know some of the other things that those are the only things we have to compare this moment to so have you heard anything from them just in terms of well this is this is something that we've had to do before we've had to sacrifice before
3: some of them yes some of them have said you know they they've talked about how their parents they said i was born during the flu pandemic of 1918 or they've heard stories about things and other ones talked about the war. Um, I I can't go into the buildings right now because I oversee more than one building. So I am not able to do my daily visits with residents, and I've really missed that. But I know that the staff has been taking a lot of time to do one-on-one visits with the residents and listen to those stories. I think it's brought up a lot of memories for the residents.
0: What do you think are you know some of the things that... As as the state begins to, you know, reopen parts of the economy in different phases, do you have any idea what that might look like uh, for a nursing home or a retirement facility over the coming months, understanding that it's going to be much slower in a facility like that than it might be, you know, at a nail salon or a gym?
3: Well, we haven't been given any kind of timeline from HHSC, which is our regulating board, um, about... <laughs> how it's going to work, when it's going to happen. I think it will change things for us in that in order to keep protecting our residents from an infection control standpoint, even if we are opened up, we'll have to continue things like masks, you know, personal protective equipment.
0: Have you heard anything from, um, you know, from families who – or in a position, you know, where they're not able to visit their loved ones in person. Um, are they are they comfortable with, you know, right now having to do it via iPad and, and FaceTime, or are you hearing anything else from their perspective?
3: I don't know that comfortable is the right word. I think accepting is the right word because they want to protect their loved one. They understand the, the depth of the risk to their loved one, Um nothing can take the place of a hug. There's just nothing that can take that place. But I think being able to communicate via FaceTime and even with my own mom, I haven't gotten to see her. Seeing her face via FaceTime is totally different than just talking to her on the phone. It It makes a huge difference to be able to see her smile. And so I think that helps, but I don't know that anybody's comfortable with it, but they understand it.
0: Christy, the last thing I've been asking my guests is, what is one thing that's giving you hope right now? So as you look at uh, maybe your colleagues or the employees at Park Central or the residents themselves, um, is there anything in the response to this moment that gives you some optimism for the future? Well,
3: I've just been very excited by the way that families, residents, um, staff members, and our community have all come together to try to keep safe everyone in our community. Um, one of the exciting things, I don't know if you're familiar with our Park Central Penhouse, but we received over 1,100 letters, cards, and drawings from local kids over the past four weeks. Wow. Um, they came from all over the Panhandle. Our goal was just to receive 1,000 letters or drawings for our residents by April 30th. And for every letter we received, We were donating $5 to the 100 Club of Texas with a maximum of $5,000. And so it was really exciting to get all those letters and be able to have those and deliver them to the residents so that they felt like they weren't forgotten.
0: Christy Greenway, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.
4: My name is Brooks Boyette. I'm the founder president of Mission 2540. We're a nonprofit here in Amarillo. We work in low-income apartment communities throughout Amarillo. Uh, we provide after-school um, activities uh, for kids. We help families with bills, rent, and that kind of stuff. And uh, just try to stay a steady presence in the lives of uh, families that live in poverty.
0: Brooks, thanks for being on the podcast. And I should also say that you're my brother. Um, so there's that connection.
4: That is correct.
0: I so I'd like to hear from you, just what you've seen in the lives of the kids that you work with. A lot of them are, um, you know, maybe living with a single mom. Maybe they're in, you know, not a great location to be sheltering in place. Maybe they're trying to deal with school but don't have Wi-Fi. I mean, what are some of the challenges of these communities uh, that are very low income uh, that they've been having to deal with?
4: Yeah, I, w- I would think the the number one challenge that, that I see. And again, we don't get to make much contact with our kids as much as we normally do due to the fact that we can't gather in groups with the kids. Uh, and, and that contributes to one of the things I'm seeing is there's just a lack of, of structure in their lives, not having school all day long. Uh, there's a breakfast at school. There's a lunch at school. Um, there's peers and encouragement from teachers all day long. And not having that when you've got parents you know, being able to work from home or being a non-essential uh worker is can sometimes be uh, a real privilege when you've got parents that have to be at work and you're a single mom having to be at work, the kids are at home all day um providing for themselves and fending for themselves and trying to do schoolwork. Um few of them have access uh to Wi-Fi if they don't go by a school bus that are set up in various places in town where they can dial into it, um, you know, they're picking up a packet from school and teachers are hoping that they get it done. So that's been a big challenge. Um, You know, one thing for me especially is uh, nutrition and food. Uh, Our schools are doing a great job of providing uh, meals, uh, but you have to get your meal. You've got to get in a car and drive to go pick it up from the school in a safe um, manner and got a lot of kids, you know, they don't have transportation to the school. Parents are at work, or a brother can't take them. And so parents are getting more stretched financially just because they've got to provide breakfast and lunch every day for their kids.
0: What are some of the things that you're hearing from parents? I I know whether you can see them in person or not, you are in communication with a lot of the families of your kids. Um, You know, a lot of these may work uh, in in places where we know the virus is prevalent, like uh, at meatpacking plants, but a, a lot of them are just you know, working minimum wage jobs, sometimes sometimes working two or three jobs, uh, and, and suddenly this lack of a regular paycheck has just brought all kinds of chaos into their lives. Is, is that something that, that you've seen?
4: Yes, I, I've helped uh, with groceries uh, for more people than I can count in the past six or seven weeks. Um, for people, you know, the the workers that have had hours cut or whatever are are really struggling. You know, that's on top of the families that I have that, you know, who work in meatpacking plants. And I'm sure Ryan Pennington has, has touched on that. Um, just a story just today, just a couple hours ago, um, I was out just doing a check on one of our families that don't live in the apartments anymore. They moved into a, a rental house and we've been trying to provide all our kids with snacks once twice a week just to get out there and the ones we can find, we give them snacks and, and there's a mom who has trying to work two jobs, uh, to pay rent. And her second job was cleaning homes. And with this, uh, with the virus, she can't do that. So she's lost a whole segment of her income. So I was at her house front porch to drop off bags and she just broke down crying because she doesn't know how she's going to keep her home. Um, she's been in touch with her mom. She may be moving in with her mom with, with her four kids. And so, uh, we're able to help some and try to help her find, some place to, to uh, find another source of income and to help her pay bills. But that's it's just an overwhelming thing when you're the only source of income and it's cut and your amount you're having to pay just to feed your kids has increased because they're at home all day. And and so that's just an added stress.
0: If you know that there are people, you know, certainly who do have the privilege of being able to continue to work and being able to work from home. They have homes that are big enough where their kids aren't necessarily getting in their way or, or disrupting it, you know, and, and maybe that's one side of Amarillo and then there's another side of Amarillo that is just like you've described and, and they are suddenly in so much uncertainty and, and such a frustrating place. Is there any way, you know, for these two sides of Amarillo to, Reach out to each other and, and to help each other. And are organizations like yours able to to really change some of these realities for them?
4: Yeah, you know that's one thing I'm seeing as people become aware of it. Um, there's there's been a lot more. I'm seeing that more people have reached out to me than. In the past, just saying, what can we do to help? Just seeing the need that, hey, we can at least help some people with. I can't give them a job, but I can help them with some food right now. Or uh, we've got so many organizations that are working to provide meals. Um, I know, even even right now, I've been in talk with a big local church. It should be announced soon. It's going to be this Friday. Hillside Church, in conjunction with um, High Plains Food Bank, is doing a big outreach at Thompson Park on Friday, of of handing out plenty of protein just to whoever can come get it um, in a nice, orderly, safe fashion. So I'm start, you're starting to see a lot of organizations seeing needs and working together to fulfill those needs.
0: I, I wanted to ask you, and, and I don't know if you can speak to this or not. Um, you know, so many of the families that you deal with are used to relying on the government as a safety net because of, you know, just the struggles that, that they go through as a low-income family. Uh, without that they they wouldn't survive. And now we're at a point where so many more people are also relying on the same government, um you know, whether through uh, paycheck p- protection program loans or um, testing capabilities, any of those things is is that something that you m- see as maybe being helpful to bridging the divide between the rich and the poor, at least in Amarillo?
4: You know, I think it should open some eyes, number one, just in the complication of actually getting in touch and talking to the right person with the government who will help you through your problem. Um, a change in income, you know, if you were receiving a Lone Star card or, or what, what have you, uh, a change in income affects how much you get um, in, in dollar amount. And it can get really complicated and it gets confusing and there's forms and, you know, we've all experienced you're trying to call one person and they send you to somebody else and somebody else. And and it's, I, I think more than anything, I, I, it should give you some sort of sympathy for, for what it takes just to be able to get in touch with the right person. You know the funds are there or something is there for you, but you're going through three levels of red tape just to get there to talk to a person, um, to, to get the assistance that you need. But it should also help you realize, hey, there there are things in place and it's needed. You can't just take advantage of it. It's complicated. The government needs a lot of information from you. They just don't throw cash at you.
0: What is one thing that maybe we don't fully understand about what some of the kids you serve are going through now? You know, beyond beyond school, beyond the meals, um, what, what's one part of their lives that, that may be a surprise to us?
3: Um,
4: you know, one would be pro- a couple of things. Um, you know, one, we can, in, in middle class you, circumstances, you can isolate yourself maybe from the more vulnerable population, like your parents or grandparents. Uh, got a load of multi-generational households. Many, many families have a grandparent living with them. Um, as a result of that, um, there's also many that are immune deficient or vulnerable in terms of uh, families that don't get quite the nutrition they need. So you're going to see uh, a lot of those issues where it's a little more dangerous and it's a little more tricky to be separate from those that are vulnerable because they're all in the same home that's not large, four kids sharing one bedroom and uh, a grandparent may be on the couch. And so we That's a whole nother layer of things. Uh, You know, another thing that a lot of people overlook is, is there are kids I know in these circumstances that don't have the best home life, um, whether uh, drugs are involved or abuse are involved and their escape is those seven hours there at school. And that escape is no longer there. Uh, The after school programs are no longer there. So they're, they're stuck maybe in a place they don't need to be all day. And that's that's also a, a scary and difficult thing going on.
0: Despite those scary aspects of it, Brooks, is there anything that's giving you hope right now? I mean, do you have any cause for optimism, whether it's among the the people you serve, or the apartment complexes, or, or any of the families that you're dealing with?
4: Yeah, you know, a few things give me hope. One, number one, is is my faith um, definitely gives me hope. My hope in Jesus. Um, I have faith when I see. And I have hope when I see our community rally around um, organizations like mine or High Plains Food Bank or uh, Easter's Mission Center, or, or you, you can look everywhere and you see people coming together to help feed and take care of the vulnerable. And, and that gives me uh, a whole lot of hope. Um, you know, just to see the communities rally, you know, I, I'll go to an apartment and Majority of people, they they take it seriously. They're wearing masks. Um, Kids are staying inside. They're not playing uh, on playground equipment, and and so they're they're following the guidelines as well, doing their best to try to keep this thing from spreading uh, throughout the community. So that also uh, gives me hope. I I know what you know. I trust in uh, the the good of people, regardless of what you see on the comment sections of social media. Um, There's a lot of good in this town, and. Uh, good medical leaders and good city government leaders and and I can see them with a heart for it and understanding what's going on and, and so that does give me hope
0: Brooks Boyette, thank you so much for being on the podcast, I appreciate it you bet and that concludes the episode first, thanks to those folks who uh, were willing to be interviewed for the show I appreciate them, I also appreciate Angelina Marie of course for editing these episodes week in and week out Thanks to Blue Handle Publishing for sponsoring the show. Go check out those books by a local author at bluehandlepublishing.com. If you or your business is interested in sponsoring the show on an ongoing basis, I would love to talk to you about it. Contact me through heyamarello.com or visit patreon.com slash Supporters of this show include executive producers Valerie Gooch, Joshua Rafe, Jess Heredia, Josh Wood, Chriselda Wilson Lemieux, who just had a baby, Patrick Burns, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Neil Nossaman, Jennifer Callahan, Ryan Pennington, whom you heard on this show, and Corey Burns. This has been episode 143. My name is Jason Boyette. Stay safe, wear a mask, and love your neighbor.